Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. We're going to open up God's Word. We've got some encouraging words we're going to hear, some scary words that we're going to hear today. And before we do it, I don't want us to miss that we're stepping into a sacred moment. Like we're asking the Holy Spirit to do something that we can't do on our own and transforming our lives. So we're just going to pray. Uh, if you're a guest with us today, I just want to say we're super glad that you decided to come here uh, today and you can impact somebody else's life by stopping out at the first time guest tent and letting us know that you were here, not just because we give you a gift, but every time you do that, uh, we reach out to somebody else who is um, being trapped in some difficult circumstances. And you can find out about that at the tent. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and recognize that you are our Heavenly Father, you are our Creator. And um, there are people that work really hard in this room and entrepreneurs and, and leaders and doctors and all this stuff. And there are people here that are struggling just barely get by and you're the maker of each one of us. None of us do this on our own. We need you. We wouldn't have a breath without you. And so we want to pause and acknowledge that. And then we want you to do something that we can't do. We don't just want to know more information about a couple words in a big book. Um, we want you to, to supernaturally change our hearts to love you more or to love you at all or to learn whatever it is you desire for us to learn about you today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. How many of you have ever traveled by water before from one point to another? I don't talk about like Falls Lake, Tubin. I mean, you've gone like on a cruise or you're in the military or like a big, I'd call it a boat. Nautical experts would be offended by that, a vessel, a ship uh, before. My wife and I were on a cruise when we first got married on our honeymoon. Uh, that's the last time I did that, by the way, um, because the buffet's awesome. Uh, don't like the idea of being out on the water where you can't see any land. Just not my favorite thing. There is some risk when you travel by sea. And so I had a dream when we were on that cruise. And I don't know if it was from like my childhood of seeing the bathtub drain swirl, but I imagine the boat like swirling into the ocean. It was bad news. And so I don't have a desire for that experience again. And most people, you talk about shipwrecks and those types of things, you think, well, that's from a long time. We didn't have technology. That doesn't happen anymore. Did you know there are, on average, over the past three years, over 50 major shipwrecks every year? And there was one this year. It was in the news just in March. You were probably watching Johnny Depp argue with his ex-wife, whatever, all that stuff. But it was, it was, a, um, it was called the Felicity Ace. It was a boat that had 4,000 vehicles on it. So you think about how, you know, inflation, all these cars are so expensive right now. Well, this didn't help. There were 4,000 vehicles on this boat. It sunk. It had Porsches, Lamborghinis, Volkswagens, Audis, over $400 million worth of automobiles. So if you're looking for a car, there are some in the ocean. But usually, if I were to say to you and start this sermon, like, I want to talk to you about a shipwreck, you'd think of one particular boat, wouldn't you? Hmm? Which is it? Yeah, we're not talking about that one. Uh, we're going to go to a different one. And some people, it's arguable, but some people think it was the greatest maritime disaster in U.S. history. And I bet many of us have never heard of it. And some of you are Googling right now. It's not fair to preach in this time period, just so you know. I, some of you have your phones, I see you doing it. And so I, I told my kids, I, I sent a meme, I parent through memes, by the way, I'll write a book on that someday, but I sent my kids a meme this week that said, respect your mother and father, they graduated from school before Google. And so if I say a date wrong today, somebody's going to send me a note, I already know it. But the uh, SS Sultana, you can look it up, it was in 1865, perhaps the greatest maritime disaster in U.S. history, and many people haven't heard of it because of all the other stuff that was happening in the media at the time. So it was in April of 1865. Those of you who are history buffs, you kind of know where this is going. The Civil War had just ended, I believe it was April 9th. On April 15th, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. He was the President of the United States at the time. On April 27th, his assassin was killed. Anybody know his name? John Wilkes Booth. Yep, John Wilkes Booth. And so he was killed that day. 
Uh, at 2 a.m. on April 27, 1865, is when the Sultana exploded. Now, it lost a lot of lives. If you look it up, there's debate about how many, somewhere between 1,100 and 1,800 people. But the really interesting thing to me about the story is the boat had a capacity of 376. What happened? Okay, so let me tell you what I've learned as I've read about this situation. I haven't watched the PBS documentary. I guess there is one out there. Uh, But what I've read is that what happened was the captain of that boat, so what they would do at the Civil War is steamboats would travel up and down the Mississippi River, and you can do all the science of how steamboats work and figure all that out. They got a bunch of boilers in them. And so this steamboat, 376-person capacity, had four boilers in it, and it was traveling down the Mississippi. News was different then than it is now. No Twitter, sorry. Uh, No 24-hour news coverage, you're welcome. And so what ended up happening was people would get newspapers. Some of you might remember these, you're that long ago, okay? And so what ends up happening is the, the North had cut communication with the South off, telegrams weren't going, the president gets assassinated, and a bunch of people didn't even know. And so Captain Mason grabs an armful of newspapers, hops on a steamboat, starts traveling south on the Mississippi, and at the port's telling people. He meets a quartermaster, his name is Reuben Hatch, and Reuben Hatch comes to him and says, hey, I control the ports, you've got the steamboat, did you know the U.S. government is paying $3 per soldier that you can transfer from the South back to their homes in the North? It's $8 for every officer, and I can guarantee you 1,400 men. And so he goes to travel to the port where he's going to pick these guys up. He's obviously got a kickback deal and bribes and all kinds of stuff that happens, and we just know that that happens. And so he's going to this port, and his boat has a problem on the way in. The Sultana has a leak in one of the boilers, and it's going to be a three-day repair. But he gets into the port, and he tells the mechanic, we can't wait here three days, or else these soldiers are all going to get on different boats. Fix it today. So instead of replacing it, he patches it. And so he patches it, they put on that boat 70 paying customers, 85 crew members, and the rest, and no one knows the exact number, were soldiers. Over 2,100, it is believed. So the decks were sagging and creaking. Two days later, to fast forward the story, they're traveling up the Mississippi about seven miles north of Memphis, and two boilers explode. About a split second later, the other two of the four boilers explode. People are flung thousands of feet from that. They recovered bodies months later in trees, like all over the place on the Mississippi. And they don't know for sure how many people died because they don't know for sure how many people were on the boat. But they know it was over a thousand. Most people, the last number that was official was 1,168. What's really interesting is no one was ever held accountable. You can dig into that mystery if you like history. And when they went to say what the cause was, the official record actually says mismanagement of the water in the boiler system. I am not a nautical expert, but how about this? There were too many people on your boat. It was overcapacity. Or how about this? Let's get a little bit deeper. Greed, the idolatry of the hearts of the captain and the guy at the port would put other people's lives at risk for this. And, or how about we'll back up a little bit in the story and go, you, you knew you had a problem, an internal problem. See where I'm going with this? You see this spiritual connection? You knew you had an internal problem. You patched it rather than really dealing with it, and now it became dangerous later. Here's the reality about almost every shipwreck story that you will see that they have any information on. You could see it coming if you just knew the signs. Today, I've titled our message, How to Shipwreck Your Life, because what our passage talks about is the signs that you are headed down the wrong path. 
And so if you have your Bibles, Hebrews chapter 12, we're going to pick up in verse 12 where we left off last week. Hebrews 12, 12. You're not familiar with the book of Hebrews. It's toward the back of the New Testament. It's one of the bigger ones, and this is the back of the book. Hebrews 12, verse 12. Let's get right in the passage. It starts with, therefore, all right, if you've been to this church very long, you know, we can't start there. Right? What is the therefore, therefore? Yep, I hear you. And so you, you, you got to know the context. Like that's just one of the things that hopefully you pick up being the part of this church for a long time. You, you got to study your Bible on your own. Can't just go with once a week what I tell you because we barely gloss the surface on most of what our passages say. So you got to dig in yourself. But if you're going to dig in, you need to know the context. A lot of people complain about, I don't understand the Bible. Well, you wouldn't understand any book this big if you just jumped into a section and started reading it. And we're going to cover a few sentences in this book. Like, you know, like, think about if you try that on a movie. Sometimes my wife watches movies, and I'll walk in the room an hour into the movie. Who's that guy? What's that? Is it, do they like Are they married? Are they, are they going to get married? Or do we want them to break up? And she's probably sitting there thinking, I want you to shut up. <laughs> she doesn't say it because she's too kind, but it's like, you're never going to get it. You just jumped at the, you're not, you're too late. You need the context. And so when you come into the Bible and you see, therefore, you go, what is that connecting to? Well, last week we talked about the Lord's discipline. And we did kind of a survey on suffering as a whole. And just for those of you who were here last week, if you see someone suffering and they ask you, why am I suffering? What should you say? I don't know. I don't know. Because unless God put in the book and said, this is why that person suffered, you don't know. Because sometimes it's because of obedience. Sometimes it's because of disobedience. Sometimes it doesn't have anything to do with their obedience or disobedience. Sometimes it's just because you're in the sinful world. Sometimes there's a spiritual battle taking place. Sometimes God's got a, His plan that you'd suffer, and it's part of a bigger plan for His glory. But you don't know. And so we talked about that. But that connected back to the beginning of chapter 12, which was an analogy of running. Remember, run the race that's set before you. Everybody's got their own race, but we don't run alone. Be conscious of the cloud of witnesses, what they're saying to us, who are you running with, throw off everything that hinders. But the problem with starting there is chapter 12 starts with the word therefore. You got to go back further. And chapter 11 was example after example of what faith lived out looks like, by faith and then fill in the blank with a name and then what they did that demonstrated their faith. So by faith Noah, by faith Enoch. But that was connected back to, do you remember, in chapter 10 and verses 36 and 39 we talked about that really sets the tone of the whole thing, which was endurance. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you've done what God wants you to do, you may receive what is promised. And we talked about a whole message about how we do work for rewards. We do live for a carrot at the end of a stick is throughout the Bible. And a lot of Christians have a hard time with that. Take it up with God. You don't just do what's right because it's right. He actually promises us blessings and promises us reward for what is promised, it says here in this passage. Verse 39, but we're not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who persevere or endure or keep going. And that's why he told us all those people who persevered and kept going in chapter 11. And that's why he gave the race analogy in chapter 12. But people were struggling. They were suffering. Some were being disciplined. And so look at what he says in verse 12. Therefore, lift your drooping hands. Strengthen your weak knees. So he's getting back into this running analogy. And make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. And so you've got these people. Remember, some, they've been warned, don't drift. Don't let your hearts get hardened. And then he starts telling them, you've got to keep going. You've got to persevere. Just told them the hall of faith, like all these people, by faith, all these people, you're running your race. 
Then he talks about discipline, gets heavy. And now he's saying, and some of you, you just can't even go anymore. So he's coming back to the running analogy and he's saying, and if you're a runner, you know, this is like, you hit the wall. Lift your drooping hands, your weak knees, and then he even uses the language lame. <laughs> now, as I thought about this this week, it was right in the sermon, I thought one of the things I hate about preaching, so I love my job, I love to get to do, there's certain things I love about preaching. One of the things I hate is that God oftentimes makes me experience the things I'm about to tell you. <laughs> and so this week, Wednesday night, I'm at my daughter's soccer practice. It's one of the last soccer practices of the year. And uh, they're 12 years old. They're down there on the field playing. And our coach says to himself, you know what would be a good idea is if all these out of shape, 40-something-year-old parents would come scrimmage these kids. Some of these parents have never even kicked a soccer ball. Let's bring them all out here. And so he does. And I, like a fool, follow the crowd. And I go out there to play. And so I start talking trash with my daughter, like we do at home. And we go to play by God's grace. I scored the first goal, which was totally by God's grace. But I decided at that moment that I would use it as a platform to embarrass my daughter. And I did a TikTok dance, to which she later told me I did wrong. So I will not demonstrate for you. And then about a second later, she scored on our team. And so she starts talking trash to me. And so we've got the Lear rivalry going with the game within the game. Like we're going at each other here. A little bit later, I go to take off after a ball and I hear what sounds like an, an air gun. And then I fell to the back of my leg what felt like a golf ball at a driving range hitting my calf. And I look back and there's no one there. But now, some of you thought I just had a little swagger with this sermon today. I tore my calf muscle. I didn't know it. So I shuffled off of the field trying to be discreet with all the grace of a wounded elephant. I kind of slid off to the side. I thought I had made it, you know, unseen off of the field until a mom from the stands yells, I can carry you. It's like, <laughs> in other words, you're lame. And she was right. I couldn't run anymore. So I shuffled in my car, drive over to the trainer. He goes, great news. I was like, great news? Oh, what? He goes, you tore your calf. <laughs> Yippee. <laughs> like, forgive me for not dancing. <laughs> you know, you get why. Uh, he said, I thought you tore your Achilles. Calf was much better. <laughs> okay. Either way, I'm lame. Can't run. What the author's saying in this passage is, some of you can't go, you, I'm telling you to endure, and you're going, I literally can't go anymore. And what he's been saying, there's people in the chapter 11 are going, you can do it, it's worth it, keep going, run the race that's before you. But there's suffering, and, the, and it's hard, and we know there's people that have already given up in this church, because we talked about it, they don't even go to church anymore. And so, and in, some of them are going, I can't, I can't go forward. He's going, well, you can do it, but it's also, and he gives in this passage, it's possible to ruin your life, or the language I'm using for this sermon, to shipwreck your life. And so what he gives us in this passage are three warning signs. The last one is the worst. Three warning signs that you're headed for destruction. The last one's the worst, and I'm just going to give you a preview because this. In every shipwreck story, there comes a point where there's no salvaging it. The ship is going down. And that happens in our lives too. But wait, pastor, you told us that as long as we got air in our lungs, we can wait till we get there. First warning sign is this, that you're on the wrong path. The first warning sign is when you're on the wrong path. We already read it in these verses, so I'll read them to you again. Therefore, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not put up joint, but can be healed. So there's still a chance of healing here. But are you on the right path? So that's a question you've got to ask yourself. 
The Bible says that a lot of times we think we're on the right path, but we're actually headed for destruction. Proverbs 14, 12 says it like this, there's a way that seems right to man and woman, for those wives that are elbowing, there's a way that seems right to man that ends in death. And so we can think that we're doing the right thing. We can think we're going the right way and not be. And Jesus says it like this, uh, there's a, a wide gate and a narrow gate. Most people pick the wide gate. Uh, few people pick the narrow gate. And the wide gate leads to destruction. His exact words, Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and, and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The language that's used in our passage in verse 13 was make straight your paths. And so what happens is there are people that are not following Christ. They know they're not following Christ, but they think they're doing the right thing. That ends in death, the Bible's saying. But what also happens is, and who's being warned in this passage, is there are people that maybe you've just been around church for a long time. Maybe you misestimate where you're at when we talk about your maturity. Maybe you're more like a baby or a toddler, and you think you're an adult or you're a sage, and, and you're going, I don't, I just know this stuff. And so I've been around Christianity, or I know the Bible, and so I'm going to do what seems right to me. And I mean, if anybody asks me a question in Sunday school, I got it. It's Jesus. Like, you're Dan. You're not trying to, you're not trying to defy God. But you think you know what's right, and you're wrong, and you're headed down the wrong path. The key is that you've got to stay connected to who's in charge, and the way he speaks to us is through his word. It's like, I don't know if you saw this story the other day, but there was a, a, a flight story that happened where an inexperienced passenger, a passenger who didn't know how to fly a plane, um, his pilot passed out, and he had to figure out what to do in the air. Did you guys see that? I think we got a picture here. My pilot's gone incoherent. If you didn't watch it, maybe you were watching Johnny Depp and whatever he said in that thing. And what he said, uh, what, they, what happened was Darren Harrison is his name, if you want to look it up. But Darren Harrison uh, was, had a wife, was seven months pregnant, went on a fishing trip with his buddies before the baby was going to come was the plan. They went down to the Bahamas, had a private plane. For those of you who are familiar with flying, it was a small plane, a Cessna. And the pilot was up in the front and the pilot started not feeling well. And he chased Darren, the way he tells the story is he says, he turned and he looked at us. And he said, I don't feel well. I've got a headache. Everything's fuzzy. What do I do? <laughs> and I'm thinking, he said, I was sitting in the back of the plane with my feet up, and I would be like, why are you asking me? You're like, what? what made you think I was qualified? I'm fishing. Come on. And then right after he asked that, the pilot passed out. And Darren, when he tells the story, says that the hand of God was on him in that moment because when he went up to the cockpit, he wasn't panicking but listen to what he saw. He said, all I could see was the ocean. The plane was descending rapidly, and I looked out the right window, and all it was was water. If you're not familiar with flying planes, that's bad. And he said, I had never flown a plane before, but what seemed to be logical to me was to not pull it quickly. So I thought, maybe the wings will rip off, or it's going to stall. He said, so I grabbed the controls. He said, this was the scariest moment. I just started to pull them back. And when he said it was the scariest moment, I was like, you think? He said, I just knew that if I didn't react, we were going to die. And he got the plane to level off, but he didn't know how to fly the thing. And he said, so my buddy and I took the pilot, put him in the back. I got into the cockpit. I grabbed the headset, but the wires were frayed on the headset, so I couldn't connect with control center. 
So I grabbed the passenger headset, put that on, connected with air traffic control, and the first thing air traffic control asked him after he, sa after he calmly said, those of you who saw the news story on TV, heard him say, um, our, pa our pilot is incoherent and I don't know how to fly a plane. <laughs> he said, where are you? The GPS was out on the plane. <laughs> Things keep getting better. And this could be a great spiritual analogy. It's not the one I'm making right now, but the most important thing for the air traffic control at that moment is you've got to know where you're at before I can tell you where to go. So we talked about that. Baby, teen, not yet a follower. Like you've got to know where you're at in your spiritual journey. There's a lot of them in this message, but there's only one I'm going to make. Is that what he says next is he says, what kind of plane is it? What does the dashboard look like? Because the air traffic controller was a flight instructor. And he wanted to be able to look at the controls as he told him what to do, and he wanted to be able to know, what are you seeing? And what happened was after that was a step-by-step -step process of getting him in line with the runway. He told him things like, the runway will get bigger as you, he's like, but I don't know how to stop the plane even if we land it. He's like, I, I got you. It was important that he stay connected to the control center. Do you get where I'm going with this? There's a straight path. You can go on it. That's, where this, that's the safety. That's where you want to be. You got to stay with me if you're going to get there. Got to stay connected to me, but I don't, I've never done that. That's fine. I know how to do it. <laughs> to be Captain Obvious, God's the control center. <laughs> he's told us what to do, and he's telling us if you do what you think is right, it will go wrong. So what is his path? Well, the Bible tells us that too. Keep going through our passage. So I've read to verse, up to verse 13. Uh, go with me to verse 14. In verse 14 of this passage, he tells us, strive for peace. And so he says, make the straight path. Verse 13, verse 14, strive for peace. Okay, so God's path is a pathway of peace, which is interesting in this world because if you think about it, and if, he, if he's proving, this world's currently proving what I just said from the Bible is true. That if you do it on your own, you're not gonna go down his path because most of the world is currently in conflict, just so you know. Whether it's an actual war in the Ukraine or, you know, I made mention of Johnny Depp. I don't know why that keeps coming up on my social media. I'm not interested at all. And I thought they had these algorithms figured out to sell me stuff. But it keeps popping up. And here's what I do know. They're fighting. <laughs> or did you see, I didn't read this story, so I might get this wrong, but the Mike Tyson one a couple weeks ago. What I saw in the headline was somebody threw a water bottle at Mike Tyson. Hello, Einstein. Like, how do you think that's going to go? That guy needs better friends. That's what I know about that. Someone needs to say, don't do that, like to that guy. And so he gets punched in the face. Like, that's what's going to happen. I'm not saying it's the right thing to happen. It just is, okay? That's going to happen. There's conflict. Watch politics every other minute. Somebody said this, and then somebody said that, and then this is why this is wrong. And The sad part is when it happens with Christians, which is what he's talking about in this passage. See, peace does not mean passivity. Notice the language that's used here. Strive. Uh, some of your translations might say make every effort for peace. This is aggressive language. If I were just preaching on just this verse, I'd say fight for peace. It's a battle for peace. But going back to our flight instructor, before you can talk about how to apply this, where are you? Because if you don't have peace with God, what this passage is talking about is the peace of God coming out of your life. You can't have that. It's not possible. If you're not a follower of Christ... You do not have peace with God. God's wrath is coming after you. You're like you're in the cockpit and all you can see is water. Now you can keep going your way or you can turn. The Bible calls that repentance. You turn from your way to God's way. You turn from your sin to God's work, to Jesus' as Savior. And so you've got to turn, repent, turn and decide. 
and you can do that. But there's no other message for you other than that today. Turn to him because you don't have peace with him. But he died for his enemies. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. But you've got to receive that sacrifice or you're going to receive God's wrath. If you're a follower of Christ, though, we talked about this extensively last week, you're not going to experience God's wrath. If you are suffering, if you are being disciplined, that is not God's wrath. That is not his punishment in your life. If you're not a follower of Christ, it might be. But if you aren't, it's definitely not that. And what you should be doing, regardless of whether you're in a situation of suffering or whether you're not yet or you just came out of one or one just ahead, strive for peace. And what we oftentimes see happening is that churches actually fight with each other. Christians, you know, they'll know we're Christians by our love. Really? Because a lot of times in the news what you see is, and I've joked with you as your pastor over the past decade or so of, you know, this church split over arguing about what happened to the potluck or somebody didn't like the lighting or dimmer level in the room or the air conditioning wasn't the right thing. It's like, and what I'm trying to say is, are we fools? <laughs> like we talk about nonsense. Jesus prayed in John chapter 17 that we'd be one as he and the Father are one, the Trinity is one, and then they would know the gospel because of our unity, but then we fight about stupid stuff. And I can joke about all that, but I want to just say one word and you all know what I'm saying. Masks. Like there's probably not a person in this room that doesn't have a relationship that's been impacted by whether to wear or not to wear a mask. I don't even care what your thoughts were on it. And I get that it's complicated. And some of it has to do with government control or it has to do with the, do they really work on the science and trust the science? But no, it's not science. And blah, 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 blah. I get it. So I don't care what your thoughts are on it. I bet you've probably lost a relationship over it. I wonder if we were striving for peace, fighting for peace. That doesn't mean everything. It doesn't mean you don't take a stand. It doesn't mean that you don't ever engage in conflict. You have to engage in conflict. There is conflict. But how come we can't even disagree with each other anymore? That's a problem. See, the peace that's being talked about in this passage is a fruit of the Spirit that's an evidence that you're not of this place, that you actually have a different home. And so that's the peace, because you have peace with God, that you live out, this is sage stuff just so you know, you live out the peace of God and it exudes out of you the fruit that comes from the root of what's happened in your life. And so what's happening, striving for peace, doesn't I mean you get along with everybody, by the way. There are conflicts in your life. But as much as it depends on you, you get along with everybody. That's what Romans chapter 12 says. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Never the Bible says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. There's no wrong that will not be made right, either by the cross or by eternal punishment. So if you're going down the path of vengeance, mayday, eject, turn, you're on the wrong path. But you don't know what happened to me. What's happening for these people in this passage is there's disunity in the church because people are quitting. Because when you quit your faith, it impacts other people. And what's happening is persecution hasn't come yet. You've not struggled to the point of shedding blood, he told them. Some of you stop even meeting together, he's told them. Don't let your hearts get hard. Don't drift. Keep going. He's talking to people that are going through stuff like we are. Because I don't, I don't want to minimize real persecution that's happening around the world where people are getting their heads cut off because they profess Jesus Christ as Savior. But can't you sense it's coming here? I read an article this week. This week of people who put their kids in a Christian school to teach them the Bible, that now they went to the media and said, these kids are indoctrinating our kids with the Bible. You think? You're paying them to do that, right? Mm. It was in Kentucky, if you want to look it up. It was about sexuality. 
and then we're mad they were teaching that homosexuality was a sin. Well, that's just what the Bible says, and we told you that before you came here, and you paid us to do it, and you sign on that you agreed with what we're saying. Okay. The media's having a field day. It's coming. They could sense it was coming, and because Christianity was not socially beneficial to the believers in Hebrews, people were quitting. It's happening now, too, just so you know. It's coming. You strive for peace. And then it puts on equal weight, not the same meaning, for holiness. It's a path of holiness. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which, get this, no one will see the Lord. So here, holiness and peace put together. It was put together a little bit earlier in last week's passage too. Do you remember that from verse 11? Uh, No discipline seems pleasant at the time. This is from the NIV, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. So put some together again for those who've been trained by it. The problem for many of us when we think about holiness is we get these images. Maybe it's because of your childhood. Maybe it's because of some show you watched. I don't know why. But we get these images that holiness is Puritans, uptight religious people who never smile, pictures with pitchforks and no smiles. You know, they're just like, those are the holy people. It's like, I don't even want to, they don't have any fun. Like, what's that like? And, and we just think like, holy, don't do anything. And then we equate sin with fun. And this, like, all this stuff happens in our minds. And, and there's a truth to the fact that holiness does have to do with your sin, but it's such a simplistic definition. Holiness, the word actually means to be set apart. We sang about it earlier. Do you remember the song? We we're talking about God's holiness. Holy, there is no one like you. Totally different. There is none beside you. It's transcendent, in fact. Holy. And we're going into his characteristic of holiness. Yeah, he's sinless. We weren't even talking about that. Holiness is to be other, that you are set apart. And when you were bought at a price with the blood of Christ and experienced peace with God, so that you'd exude the peace of God into this world, you were also set apart for God. And so if you're just like this world, no one will know that. Here's the problem. The church in America would rather be conformed to this world than transformed by God's word. And, and so, got to stay connected to control center. What does he say? He's told you if you're going to run your race, that if you're going to go after Christ, you've got to throw off everything that hinders you and sin. Yeah, sin has, it's not that holiness doesn't have anything to do with sin. That's just a, an element of it. Throw off the sin that entangles you. Why? Well, I want to have fun. Yeah, there's a greater joy for you, and that's stopping you. So, everything that's stopping you from the greater joy, get rid of that. You've been set apart. That's not your story. Go here. But we'd rather, rather be conformed to the world, have everybody like us, than be transformed by God's world and walk in what you've been designed for. I was reading about holiness this week. There was a quote that impacted me. It was by J.C. Ryle. If you want to look it up, the C.S. Lewis Institute is where I found it. It says, J.C. Ryle, he said this, holiness is the habit of being of one mind with God. How could you do that? According as we find his mind described in Scripture. Okay, so in case you don't pick this up, stay connected to the control center. It's the habit of agreeing in God's judgment, hating what he hates, loving what he loves. This is holiness. Measuring everything in this world by the standard of his word. So we don't judge his word by the world, we judge the world by his word. A holy man will endeavor to shun every known sin and to keep every known commandment. He will have a decided bent of mind toward God a hearty desire to do his will, a greater fear of displeasing him than displeasing the world. Mm, That's where we struggle. And a love to all of his ways. He will feel what Paul felt when he said, I delight in the law of God afterward, the inward man. Mm. 
I love what you have to say. I, I trust you, Father, that what you want is actually best for me. And even if I don't like what you say, I'm going to trust that it's actually best for me. I saw a meme this week where somebody, it, it was a, a, a satire thing. Somebody was handing a kid a knife, and the kid was crying. But actually what was taking place was they were taking the knife away, and the, and the script said at the bottom, my mean parent is taking away this fun knife. And I thought, that would have been perfect last week. We talked about God's discipline. Even when he disciplines you, it's out of love. It's a sign of his love for you because he wants better for you. Oh, man, if we just loved what he said, that'd be the path of holiness. Not on the path of holiness, not on the path of peace. Warning, turn around before it's too late because it can be too late. Second warning is beware of bitterness. Beware of bitterness. Verse 15, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. How would we know if we were failing to obtain the grace of God? Here it is, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, many become defiled. <laughs> See, the peace could be its own thing. It would be such a great series in this time of the world, but a lot of times it's like the prophet Jeremiah said, that the false prophets are yelling, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what we settle for, whether it's because we're people pleasers, we're going to be conformed to the world, whatever, is false peace. False peace is when there is real conflict, but we, we just, just act like there's nothing going on. It's fine. It's fine. Everything's fine. The Bible cares a lot more about our unity than most of us do. In this church, I'm talking about myself, church leader. Do you know what the Bible says of somebody's device? Have you ever been in a small group with a divisive person or church with a divisive person? Don't look at them. Look here. <clears throat> Maybe you've been that person. And the Bible says, Titus chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, warn them once, warn them twice, then have nothing to do with them. Baseball gives you three strikes. The Bible only gives you two. Why? because they're showing you a root problem. They've got a core heart issue problem. You've warned them, not there was no grace, you even warned them again, but it's infectious. I'm saying, done with them. We don't want, you're not, come just as you, everybody's welcome to church, but not you, because <laughs> you're divisive. Until you turn, can't have you in here because you're gonna, you're gonna infect everybody else. And what does it say in this passage? The bitterness, by the way, um, what came before, this isn't two separate sermons, what came before one is the path of holiness and the path of peace. It ties into this. If you don't go down the path of holiness and you don't go down the path of peace, you will end up in the waters of bitterness. You know what the crazy thing about bitterness is? Everybody thinks it's bad. So you got a non-believer friend and you guys argue about everything at work. Bitterness is bad. There's your notes. You can just talk to them about that. Everybody thinks bitterness is bad. Uh, you can read secular studies, which I did some this week, just thinking about bitterness. They'll give you diagnosis, signs of where, where bitterness comes from. They don't have a cure. And so signs. Signs are things like this. Have you ever had an argument with somebody and they weren't there? It's an imaginary. Don't raise your hand. Or raise your hand, but I won't look. Raise your hand, but I won't look. In case it was with me. You ever have an argument with somebody and it's an imaginary argument? Never had that? I've done it. I'm undefeated, by the way, in those. <laughs> I have yet to have an opponent say something I didn't think of when I'm making up what they're saying to me. <laughs> I would have never thought of that. Yeah. That's a sign you might be bitter if you're having those discussions, by the way. You ever rejoice when somebody else suffers or struggles? Yeah. This is a secular study I was reading. They don't believe. Rejoice with those who rejoice and, and mourn with those who mourn. It's a command for Christians, by the way. If you do that, secular studies, that's a sign of bitterness. You ever said this before? There was one that I was reading. A, a gentleman actually came up with a diagnosis for bitterness that he called a mental disorder, like PTSD. 
And it was a lot like PTSD. Do you ever make excuses about things for your future because of something that happened to you in the past? They said, that's a sign of bitterness. I mean, my life would be so much better if blank didn't ever happen. I'd try that, but blank happened. It's a sign of bitterness. Diagnose it. They can tell you the signs of it. Tell you the causes of it. They say tragedy. The Bible goes so much deeper. If you read the Bible on bitterness, the first time you'll see that word for bitter in Hebrew in uh, the Old Testament, it was written in Hebrew, it's mara. Sometimes in the English translations it even translates it mara. It's just showing you that word. It's in Exodus chapter 15. The context for Exodus chapter 15 is Exodus chapter 14, which I think context is important because you haven't picked it up in this message. In Exodus chapter 14, there was this water miracle where there were like two million Israelites and they crossed on dry ground through, uh, they call it the Red Sea, and they get to the other side. Three days later, <laughs> three days later in Exodus 15, they're complaining because they don't have water. Oh man, there's so much humor here, but we don't have time. Um, you kind of know a guy who can fix the water, but whatever. Anyway, um, they're complaining. Then they find water, but they can't drink it because it's mara, bitter. But you see the bitterness in their lives in the story because of anger. Anger is one of the main causes of bitterness. When you see it listed as a sin in the Bible, anger and bitterness are often together. Malice and slander and gossip and things like that too. Wrath and fighting, discord, all the conflict language, they come together. Anger is simply this, when you don't get what you want. Somebody could have blocked it, you felt entitled and didn't receive it, like whatever. For whatever reason, you didn't get what you wanted and now you're angry. Somebody's driving too slow in front of you. Like all the scenarios come down to you're not getting what you want and you're angry. When it happens to a little kid, you know, they come to you and say, can I have a snack? No, dinner's in five minutes, no snack. Rolling around on the ground and you're an adult and so you would never do such a thing. You just look at them with a judgmental King James like, thou is filled with the Holy Spirit. And you know, are you done? Like is what you say to the kid. What are you done with? You're getting it out. You're getting the anger out. Adults, the Bible says it's not with the sun go down on your wrath, but a lot of times we'll hang on to it. And that turns into bitterness. First cause, anger. Second cause, uh, there's a guy listed in Hebrews 11. His name is Abel, and he's praised for his faith because he offered the better sacrifice. Everybody in the Bible wasn't excited about that. There's another guy named Cain, his brother, and he killed him because of it. Jealousy is a cause of bitterness. Anger is a cause of bitterness. Um, Tragedy, which the secular studies all point to, a cause of bitterness. Read the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. There's a woman named Naomi, and she loses both her husband and her son. So her and her daughter-in-law go to her hometown. All of her high school besties come out. Naomi, you're back. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because God has dealt bitterly with me. Tension. It gets resolved in that story. It's a great gospel book, the book of Ruth. But bitterness from tragedy. And what does that do? See, the Bible goes even deeper. It doesn't just show you signs of it. It doesn't just show you how to identify it. It doesn't just tell you the causes of it. The Bible will tell you like, things that, that it means for you. Uh, Acts chapter 8, verse 23, incredible story. Uh, you don't have to read the whole thing on your own to get the context. We don't have time for that. But it says this, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bondage of sin. Bitterness is bondage, just so you know, if you've identified it in your own heart. And if you have it, you know. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 10 says this, the heart knows its own bitterness, no, and no stranger shares its joy. No one wants that. No one wants bitterness. So what do we do? 
I mentioned Ephesians, talking about dealing with your anger. It's interesting. Ephesians also says this, same chapter, uh, chapter 4 and verse 31 and 32. says, let all, blame, or let all bitterness, and then look at this list, and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. They're all in the same fam- family, by the way. But what do we do? Here's the solution. Be kind to one another. Gentle or tenderhearted, same language. Oh, in our passage it says, don't fail to obtain the grace of God. And in Ephesians, when it gives a solution to bitterness, anger, clamoring, all those things, malice, it says forgiving one another. That's also interesting because if you're bitter, it means you don't understand the grace of God because you're not being gracious. Do you know what the Bible also says? If you don't forgive, it shows you you haven't received the forgiveness of God. You're not forgiven. And then here it says the answer to your bitterness could be forgiving someone else. But you don't know. You don't know what happened. I, I listened to a guy share a story uh, this week. His name was Eric. He was a youth pastor um, from Georgia. Fell in love with his wife, June. Uh, June, and he got married. Three years later, they had a daughter. And then a year after that, he got pregnant for a son. And about six, seven months into their pregnancy, he woke up late one morning. And his wife was already gone for the day. And the pastor of his church, he's a youth pastor, the senior pastor, had come to his house, was pounding on the door. He came to the door. He said, June's just been in a car accident. We've got to go to the hospital immediately. So grab your stuff. They grab his stuff, they go to the hospital, sits down with the doctors, and gets news that no spouse ever wants to hear about their spouse. This is when June got to the hospital. She had suffered traumatic brain injuries, and she was pronounced dead upon arrival. But it gets worse. He said, the steering column of your van was smashed into her abdomen, and your seven-month-old son, who was in the womb still, um, passed as well. He was devastated, as you can imagine. And later that day, he's a pastor, he's a youth pastor, and he pulls out his Bible and he says, God, do you have anything for me? He starts reading his Bible, and he said he remembered a sermon. And it gave me hope when I heard that. I thought, maybe they won't get it today, but maybe they'll remember it. He says, I remembered a sermon where the pastor was saying, in our story, a lot of times we look at life like it's a three-by-five card. But God's doing a bigger story, and he's painting on a canvas the size of the universe. He said, in that moment, I didn't like my part of the story, but I trusted that there was a bigger thing happening. So not long after that, the solicitor general called him, works for the um, general counsel for the state, and says, um, the gentleman who hit your wife is going for trial and then sentencing, and you can pursue the maximum sentence. It'll be jail time. And he was a fireman, an EMT, who had worked a 24-hour shift. He didn't uh, sleep much on that shift, and on his way home, he fell asleep at the wheel and drove into June and his son. And he said, I, I'm listening to this conversation. You could go for a lesser sentence. And he said, in my mind, I was thinking, nothing I'm going to do is going to bring my wife and son back. This feels like an opportunity for God to be glorified. So I want to demonstrate forgiveness. Let's go for the lesser sentence. But he wasn't allowed to talk to the guy because of investigation and legal proceedings for two years. He said the day before the two-year anniversary of June's passing, he was at a public grocery store in their town, and the guy pulled up in his truck, and he saw him, and he went right to him. And with tears in his eyes, he hugged him and said, I want you to know I forgive you. And he began to talk to him about the grace of God and what he had been learning. And the other guy was talking about the grace of God and his story. They'd become friends. But what I loved about Eric's story was the honesty. He said, this isn't rainbows and butterflies. Like, I want my wife back. I go to bed lonely every night. And I want to tell you something. In my own experience, that sometimes, sometimes, it depends on how big the trade is, sometimes for me, forgiveness is a process. 
where you get on the path. Like I'll think, I've gotten on my knees before with the Lord and said, I've already forgiven this person. Why am I so mad still about something that's happened before? So we're going to, and you know what? Some of you are going to hear me share a story like that or tell you you need to forgive, and you're going to go, Pastor Scott, you don't understand. You're probably right, just to be clear. I'm not claiming I understand. But I'm going to tell you from my experience, what's happened for me is, when, my, when I'm not able to do something, my inability comes into contact with God's capability, he increases my faith capacity. When my inability comes into contact with his capability, because God promises in the Bible that he's going to command things you can't do. Don't let people tell you, God will never give you more than you can handle. He tells you things in the Bible you can't do. But he empowers those things. That's the Holy Spirit. And so he empowers the things he commands. So when your inability, your finite, comes into contact with his capability, he's infinite. He grows your faith. And so it's trusting him is what forgiveness is. You're still time. Turn. The third warning means there's a place where time runs out. The third warning sign is stop taking sin shortcuts. Stop taking sin shortcuts. We left off in verse 15. This is, uh, I'm going to read you 15 because it's still one sentence. We've inserted the verses. God didn't do that, by the way. It's just a way for us to find stuff in the Bible. But in chapter 12 and verse uh, 15, he says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Remember, he's just said, no one will see the Lord if you don't go down the right path. So see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. These are some pretty significant warnings. Um, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Same sentence, verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know, and he's saying these people, they knew the Old Testament. It's in Genesis 25 through 36. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. What's being talked about here uh, with Jacob and Esau, if you don't know the story, is one of the worst deals in all of history. Like, I don't know if you've ever been ripped off. I remember the first time I got ripped off. Everybody should get ripped off, by the way. It's just a good life lesson. Figure stuff out. Uh, Lots of lessons in it. But I remember the first time I was in elementary school, I sold some basketball cards to a friend. The next day I went to school, and all the other kids are going, you sold those cards for this much money? You're a fool. And I'm thinking, yeah, I am. (laughs) Still think so today. I don't remember what those cards were. Probably a Michael Jordan rookie card I sold for like a nickel for, you know, it's worth a bazillion dollars today or whatever. And uh, so if you have one, I take donations. I will receive it. Um, and I won't even sell it, I promise. But at any rate, uh, there's some terrible deals out there. I don't know. I, I think I mentioned about three or four months ago, it was in the news, Ron Wayne uh, was one of the original founders of uh, Apple, and he sold his 10% shares for $800. And the reason why I was in the news is because on a particular day, those shares would have been worth $300 billion if he still had them in March of this year. That's a bad deal but not as bad as Esau because of what he gave up. It was more than money. And it went kind of like this. It'd be like if you came over to my house and you said, oh, a small group's awesome. Oh, you're making ta- Those smell like some good tacos. I'm like, yeah, they're good tacos. Can I have one? And I go, um, why don't you delete your wife and kids from your life insurance policy, put my name in, and then I'll give you a taco. <laughs> and you don't go, are you crazy? You say, okay, give me the taco. That's what happens in Genesis 25. There's two guys, they're brothers, they're twin brothers. One was older, Esau was the older, the older gets the blessings in, the, in, the, in their culture. And so the older one comes in, he's a, he's a camo guy, he wears the camo all the time, he's hunting. And then there's the GQ, like the Gucci guy, he's inside, he's a culinary expert, you know, Knife Ninja, you see that on Food Network, you ever try that? Don't try that, it hurts. And so, 
So he's cooking up a meal. Hungry guy comes in. He's hangry, wearing his camo. Give me some stew. I tell my kids to ask for stuff. From me, from other people, like, you just never know. They might give it to you. Go big. This is ridiculous. It's audacious. Jacob goes, yeah, you can have some stew if you give me your birthright. That's your inheritance. It's everything that's been promised to you. It's your future. And he says, yes. But if you read the story, he doesn't say. And there's a prostitute in the back. Hey, here's some porn. But when you read Hebrews, it says, don't be sexually immoral like Esau. Uh, where was that in the story? Do you think it's any coincidence that in America, not only do we have incredible sexual perversion, but a big problem with gluttony? Your God is your stomach, is what he's saying. And when that's true, warning! It's like getting in the cockpit and all you see is water. But there comes a point. There come, the biggest problem with understanding this passage is not that it says that Esau is sexually immoral. The biggest problem is this passage is going, wait, he's not able to repent? Pastor, you've told us since the beginning of this church, if there's air in your lungs, God's still got a plan for you. There's still a chance. Turn. And that's true. And it's still true. This passage does not say that he wanted to repent and God said, no. Read what it says. He sought the blessing. And if you read Genesis 27, he wanted the blessing with tears. But he had no chance to repent. Why? Because his heart was too hard. It is possible. God will all, genuine repentance will never be rejected by God. It's possible to get past the place where you would repent. Warning! That's significant. Why do you think Hebrews says, today, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts? Because it doesn't get better when you go down that path. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to repent today. That's to turn. Turn from the way you're going, turn on your, from your path to God's path. And I turn to him. If your heart's sensitive, you've sensed that maybe you're bitter or, or there's sexual immorality or you're going down the wrong, you've been doing things you thought they were the right thing, but it might not be what God says and so you want to get on the right path. Then you turn from whatever you're at and you turn to him. But if you're sitting there and you're going, yeah, whatever, wrap it up. Whoa, warning. The band's going to come. I'm going to lead us in a prayer, but you talk to the Lord. The Holy Spirit will do the work. Let's bow our heads, bow our hearts before him. Father, we come before you right now, and it would be easy to miss this moment and you know, start singing a song in a minute or, or getting to lunch or whatever's the next thing, but God, if you're working in our hearts, I pray we wouldn't, we wouldn't harden our hearts, that we would listen. And I just encourage you, brothers and sisters, whatever it is that God's telling you to do, you do that by his Holy Spirit leading you. And maybe it's like, I don't even know what to do. I don't know what his word says. Then okay, okay, we know where to get connected to the control center, start talking to him. Get the instructions, but commit right now. Whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. Whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. And surrender and trust. What? I couldn't forgive. I can't let go. I don't know how to. Uh-huh. Turn to him. He'll empower you. He will change you. He can do that. Father, we come before you right now. I pray if there's any here that need to begin a relationship with you, this will be the moment of salvation. Pray for people that have secrets that nobody else knows about. You know. You were there when it happened. And pray that you draw them to you. Change us, transform us. And I'm going to say amen in just a minute, but I want you to know you don't have to stop talking to him. 
Even if you stand up and start singing, you can be talking to the Lord. The Bible says to pray without ceasing. Sometimes you're talking to other people, but you're thinking the Lord's doing something in your heart and you start talking to Him and you just keep, keep don't miss. If He speaks, don't miss it. So in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.